Everybody get up, it's time to rank now. We got a podcast going now called Ranking the Beatles. It's your chance, do your dance on our podcast. All right. Yes. Quad City DJs, Space Jam. It's the song of the day, folks. It's getting tougher to think of songs for that as we keep going in this, that was a good one, in this show. But I'll take that one. I feel like that was a serious departure from your normal go-to. Yeah, probably. Like generic white guy rock, <laughs> rock songs. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I'll, good. I'll take a little progression, though. Uh, welcome, everybody, to Ranking the Beatles, episode number 69. How's it going, my friends? Oh, I am no. Jonathan, over here on my left, giving me a disapproving look. <laughs> my partner in crime, the one and only Julia. How are you, my dear? Disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> Disappointed. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Oh, well. I'm hungover. <laughs> yes, you are. I love that you've admitted it on our show, too. That's so unlike you to ever admit weakness like this. I know. Like I know. It truly is. I don't know. Like, I'm not sure that I'm... I think it was just like, I... Let's be clear. It was not 17 cocktails. I had three, <laughs> which is a lot for me. And I stayed up way past my bedtime. Two of them were doubles. Oh, no. Shh. Don't talk about that. <laughs> so then that's... Four. I mean, okay, but like their definition of double was like not that was like a normal cocktail. I feel like their single was like a tiny cocktail. Okay. <laughs> I was like, okay, <laughs> so they were like not real. Like I wouldn't have called that a double. Sure, it like their double was like a normal size cocktail. Okay, okay. So um, still enough to put a hurting on you though. I think I think it was just like a couple drinks plus way past my normal bedtime. Yeah, and now I'm just like I'm sleepy. Yeah, my uh, my '90s cover band, big in the '90s, had a show last night. Uh, here in town and uh, it was a lot of fun everybody came out dressed in their 90s finery their freshest threads um it was pretty impressive yeah had a good turnout there was one woman that had like the salt and pepper jacket yeah like the uh <laughs> color blocked was sort of like the eight ball like the on eight the ball, sleeve yeah. i was like <gasps> i lost it was great my mind when i saw it like zero chill was like you're amazing <laughs> hello there are lots of lots of bucket hats in attendance. Hats. I had a bucket hat yep. last night. Um, it was a good time though. I need to, I need to wear a bucket hat. One a lot of night. good dancing. A lot of good dancing. Do it. I wish that I could convince my band that it's worth bringing the the '90s Beatles anthology songs into our set list. But I also know it would go down like a flaming Led Zeppelin yeah. if we were to do that. I don't think people are going to be into that. Like you guys want to party? Free as a bird. <laughs> like, no. Just not going to get the party started. I don't think so either. But, you know, you live and learn. You do what you can. That's why I have a Beatles cover band and why I have a 90s cover band. Right. You're, so, just, you're filling all your little I'll get joy what I buckets. Want. I'll get what I want somehow. <laughs> That's what we do. You just have to convince the right people. Yeah, pretty much. But, um, yeah, so welcome to uh, today's episode, gang. Excited about the show. Uh, this is your first time tuning in. Welcome. Uh, what we do here is we have a list of 223 songs written and or not written necessarily, but recorded by the Beatles. And uh, I have ranked them in order of least favorite to most favorite. And every episode we talk about another song in that ranking. And today we've reached song number 148 in the rankings. Woo. So super excited. We are making our way. We are chugging along. Just 
toot toot. <laughs> I think I can. I think I can. Speaking of quad city, quad city DJs. DJs. Come on, ride that train. Okay. And ride, ride it. Toot toot. <laughs> Another jam. Another 90s jam I've been thinking about this morning. It's, it's all the same song. Yeah. <laughs> if you play them is. back to back, you'll realize it's all the same song. I'm going to medley those two. It has to happen. I'm. I'm here for it. And I'm, then I'm somehow going to wear free as a bird into it. <laughs> That's going to be terrible. That might be a stretch. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Well, let's um, let's turn our uh, attention to the uh, the topic at hand this I week. Yes, we should. A little bit about today's episode. So our guest this week uh, has been dubbed the rock and roll detective by his clients, which is a pretty rad title to have. I would love to have that title. Uh, he spent a lifetime researching, writing, and consulting in pop music history. His books on the unreleased recordings of The Beatles and the making of Nirvana's seminal album Nevermind are critically acclaimed. Uh, he served as a consultant to Apple, uh, Apple Corps on Beatle projects, uh, the George Harrison estate, uh, Traveling Wilburys, the band Garbage, producer Butch Vig, um, also who produced Nevermind, so pretty rad, uh, the estates of Roy Orbison and Buddy Holly, and many international record labels. Uh, he's currently the co-star of two pop culture TV series on the Reels channel, Celebrity Legacies and Celebrity Damage Control. And his most recent book uh, is a bestseller entitled The Beatle Who Vanished, the true story of Beatles fill-in drummer Jimmy Nickel, who filled in for Ringo on the Beatles World Tour in 1964 before pretty much completely vanishing from the public eye. Ooh. So very interested to explore that. I've always wondered what happened to old Jimmy Nickel. I mean, I feel like that's a lot to go from like, kind of random musician guy and then you're a beetle yeah and then then you're not a beetle yeah <laughs> you just get left at the airport it's a whirlwind how yeah. long did he tour with them uh less than two i think 10 days oh wow that is a whirlwind it's a short thing yeah Ooh. and like just you know i think i would need a break from the world after that too yeah pretty much so excited to talk about that i'm sure we'll talk about that and a lot more stuff so let's get into it friends please welcome this week's guest jim birkenstadt Jim, welcome to Ranking the Beatles. How are you, my friend? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. Awesome. We're glad to have you, man. Really excited about it. Um, you know, I've got to ask, you've got what I think is maybe one of the all-time greatest job descriptions of rock and roll detective. Uh, how does one become the rock and roll detective? Is there a school you have to go to or a course you have to take? And where can I sign up for it? Because I want to do this. <laughs> So much fun. Well, it's it's really uh, just something that I uh, came up with maybe back in the early 90s. And I, I thought, well, this is what, what I'm doing is really being a detective, but in the realm of rock and roll music. I'm interested in mysteries or things that aren't readily available uh, in the way of knowledge. And so I just slapped myself with that name and it's stuck and a lot of people now come to me for help uh whether it's tv shows documentaries um the beatles george harrison's family uh have hired me many times for a number of projects including most re recently the get back uh, documentary that was on disney plus so uh, it's just kind of a moniker. I like it. I, I haven't thought of starting my own college, the college of rock and roll degrees, but, uh, you never know. <laughs> uh, so how did you kind of enter into this world? I'm, I'm curious. I, I you know, I, I, I want to ask about your, your backstory about the Beatles and how you got into the Beatles, et cetera. But, you know, also, you know, how do you get into this world of, of researching all this musical history and all these kind of, you know, untold stories that you're into? 
Well, <clears throat> excuse me. I guess it was that um, starting in the 60s, I a lot of kids back then were just like looking at statistics on the backs of baseball cards. Like, oh, this guy has 17 home runs this year. And I was looking at the backs of album covers and 45 sleeves and studying all the little details. Who produced it? Who engineered it? Uh, who wrote that song? Did they did they sing someone else's song or, or did they write their own? And if they sang a cover of someone else's, then I that sort of kind of brought me to, oh, I want to um, learn about that person because that person influenced this artist that I like. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... It started out that way. There, you know, this was pre-Rolling Stone magazine, even which was the original bible of music information uh, every couple of weeks. So there really wasn't much news in general newspapers. But then uh, there were fan clubs, and people started to just sort of come up with correspondence lists and things. And we just all sort of formed informal networks using either the U.S. mail or uh, meeting up, going to record stores together, exchanging not only stories, but saying, hey, this, have you heard about this new group? Now, one of the things I remember was, um, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Breakfast Club or heard about it, mm-hmm. but you know, it's a high school, it wasn't really a club, it was a place for kids in high school got into trouble. And at my high school, uh, which was called Nutrier West, uh, apparently I got into trouble and usually it was for cracking jokes in the back of the classroom and making other people laugh, which was highly disrupted. Right. <laughs> so um, they tell you the principal and the principal would say, okay, you're sentenced to two breakfast clubs, you know, this week. And, and then that those took place at about, I don't know, six or seven in the morning before class started. And you just sit in a room with these other people and talk to them. And I'm sure my parents would have been horrified if they knew what I was really doing. I used to tell them that I was going to school early to be in a study group. So, <laughs> well, otherwise, they would have thought I was in there with a bunch of thieves and murderers because it was thought to be so bad to be uh, in the breakfast club. But the cool thing about this breakfast club that I was in was that people would bring albums and say, hey, check this out. And I remember one of them bringing me uh, Traffic's Low Spark of High Heel Boys album. And I was blown away. I'm like, oh, thank you for you know turning me on to this. And so that was just another place where we all exchanged information about music and musicians that we love. So um my career path was to become an attorney. I became a trial attorney and later a um, corporate attorney. But the skills of a trial attorney really help you when you want to track down information. You have to get up to speed on on a topic that you maybe have never known anything about. You know, for example, if you deal in a medical malpractice case to determine whether a doctor did something wrong, you almost have to learn, you have to learn all the terminology. You have to learn about what was the disease or the accident. What are the right procedures? You know, the, the acceptable procedures. What did he do? You know, it's so you sort of have to get up speed on things you've never done before or learned before. So I used those tools <clears throat> to become the rock and roll detective on the side. 
I always was passionate about it. I started writing articles for Goldmine Magazine, uh, which is a record collector's magazine uh, in the 80s. And then there were some more mag musician magazine. Uh, there was a really cool one when CDs came along. <clears throat> it was called Ice the CD Newsletter. And it always had all this like stuff about coming CDs, you know, two, three months ahead. And I was fat, was fascinated by that. At the same time, I began as a big Beatle fan, I began collecting their bootlegs starting in late 1969. Uh, in Chicago, we had a place called Old Town. And it, it was sort of, I guess, like Haight-Ashbury of San Francisco, that kind of idea, hippie culture area. And they had this giant store that was like the Macy's of head shops. <laughs> and so I wasn't into drugs or anything, but I was into... I love these uh, black light posters like you'd see of Jimi Hendrix or the Beatles, etc. So I always wanted to go in and see those with the black light on and, and all that. And, and then all of a sudden they had a section of this giant uh, department store, hippie department store. And this guy had all these albums on the back wall and they turned out to be bootlegs. And he told, he told me a little bit about them. And so that day I bought a couple of my first I think one was the Beatles live in Washington, D.C., 64. And the other one was called Sweet Apple Tracks, which was a double album of the Beatles rehearsing for what became the Let It Be movie and now the Get Back movie. So even when the Beatles broke up, I continued to collect both Beatle bootlegs and then their solo recordings and there any solo bootlegs which were usually live concerts and i um you know i just kind of kept up all that all up on all that even though i was a lawyer and some people never grow up i'm told by my wife so <laughs> i kept that same passion <laughs> you, don't, you don't say jim what <laughs> So, I mean, I still inside feel like a, a teenager when it comes to finding a new Beatle recording or something along those lines. So I kept up at it. And then after writing the magazine articles, I wrote my first book, which was called Black Market Beatles, the story behind their lost recordings. I think that first brought me to the attention of Neil Aspinall. I'm told that he had by a friend who was talking to him about a licensing deal. Uh, he saw my book on Neil's desk and they chatted about it. And so that was maybe the first time they became aware of me. Mm -hmm. I wrote a book about uh, the making of Nirvana's Nevermind album in the 90s because I'm a longtime friend with which Big, who produced the album. And that was a lot of fun. And so he's a Wisconsinite, I, isn't he? Yeah, he's from Matt. Well, he's from, he originally was from Viroqua, which I've never been to, but then he went to college here in Madison and, and settled here. And that's where he originally produced Nirvana, Smashing Pumpkins, uh, had his own band. In fact, Garbage, his band started there. Uh, just, a lot of just big a bands. little band. You might not have heard of them. A little <laughs> band called Garbage. Well, <laughs> what was funny at the time was. I remember going over there one of the first times and <clears throat> he said, yeah, I'm producing this 
uh, unknown band, you know, it's a little punk band or something from Chicago. He said, this guy here, this is Billy Corgan. I said, oh, hi, Billy. Nice to meet you. And later I realized I met Billy Corgan, the leader of the Smashing <laughs> But, you know, all these people, you know, they have to start somewhere. And a lot of them came through Smart Studios in Madison, and I was able to meet them. And it was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. I met Jayhawks there. And uh, who's that guy? DJ Danger Mouse was there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After, uh, after he did that. Um, the Grey album of the gray album yeah that was great and we're still in fact we're still friends to this day butch just wrote the forward for my new book that's coming out right now called mysteries in the music case closed and it's really cool because he writes he and i both grew up with the same passion you know for music and he went in the direction of becoming a producer and a musician and I went in the direction of being someone who wanted to document the musicians and what they do. And so he wrote a really interesting forward about how our paths were somewhat parallel and then they diverged and then, and then we became friends. And so it's really nice, nice little piece uh, to start the book off. So yeah, I just kept that up. And then around 1998, I heard that George Harrison wanted to redo All Things Must Pass. So I somehow got the phone number of his assistant, Linda, and called her up and said, I think I have a lot of information that would help George during this. And I said, tell George, we've already bought this as a vinyl. We've already bought this as a cassette. We've already bought this as an eight track. And we've already bought this as a CD. And he's coming out with it again as a CD box. So he needs to give us old people something else, a reason to buy it. And the reason is, or the rationale would be, give us some rare tracks. So George replied via email and said, what do you have? And so I had all, as a collector, I had all the demos he did with Phil Spector. And I had just hours and hours of alternate takes and things. I don't know how all these leaked out, but. Um, so some of those ended up on that 2000 release. Mm -hmm. And then when George was at his last, um, meeting before he passed away with Apple, so it was with Paul Ringo, Yoko and Neil Aspinall, they were just starting to talk about redoing the Let It Be movie. And, uh, I don't know if they'd called it Get Back yet, but they wanted to redo the movie, recut it. And George said, you guys need to hire this guy, Jim Birkenstead in Madison, because he knows where all these skeletons are buried. <laughs> so that, that's how I got involved. In, that was my first project, actually, with Apple, working on the movie that just came out. But that's like now 21 years ago or so. Wow. That's crazy. But many yeah. So that's kind of a summary of how I became the rock and roll detective. That's a heck of a journey, though. I mean, yeah. that's that's a great. Are you oh. are you like super pumped that they waited so long to redo to to make Get Back in the way that they did, so that Peter Jackson could create all of this technology to make it sound so much and look so much better than? Yeah, I'm thrilled. I, I mean, the time it took to finally pull it all together was a good thing because. 
And like you said, technology had moved forward and advanced. I mean, the colors are so brilliant. I just remember watching Let It Be in a movie theater and it just seemed like this really dark, shadowy, you know, film where you could barely make out their faces. And, and of course, also that particular cut by Michael Lindsay Hogg was, you know, was his creation, but it was a little, it was a little depressing. And, and this was, I thought, a more balanced approach. It showed how tough it was at the start and George leaving the group, but then when he comes back and when they, when he brings Billy Preston back, it just becomes so much fun. And you see Yoko and the kid and Paul's kid and, you know, people wandering around and enjoying it in the background and, and the Beatles are really starting to gel, really starting to prepare for that rooftop concert. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. It was so nice to just see them be like human and have, tough days and laugh together and be mad at each other and have a fight and then come back together and then get on the rooftop and play this amazing like it they're, they're just like the gamut of human emotions because <laughs> turns out they're humans like yeah. <laughs> it was so cool to see that and like so and clear so much more like brothers than just friends you know because that those all those human emotions are what we see in interactions between brothers or brothers and sisters or sisters. Oh, for sure. Because there are four people who had a very similar experience and no one else in the world has had that experience. Yeah. Like they're connected on such a deep level because no one knows what it's like to be them except for the four of them. Right. Right. And that's one of the things, you know, I I've just in the last couple of years started kind of dipping my toes into the bootleg world. Cause it's kind of daunting because there's so much, and so much varied quality, you can drop, you know, $30 on a bootleg record and then take it home and it sounds like absolute trash and you're never going to listen to it again. Um, right. But one of the things that I love about getting like these studio outtakes and things, especially when researching for these episodes, is you hear those outtakes and you hear, you know, you're so used to them being this kind of perfect, uh, you know, pop creation, just this perfect, you know, thing where all the music is so brilliant to actually kind of get the rough edges of things and the goofs and the moments where, you know, someone's voice gives out, you know, it's like, it really, it humanizes them much in the same way that you get from get back where you realize like, Hey, Ringo's got a pimple for the first week of this session. Like, you know, John doesn't wash his hair very regularly. Like they're human beings. Ringo farted. Ringo farts. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I think the other thing for me, and this is what I think got me, so hooked on bootlegs, um, especially studio bootlegs more than the live ones, was I had taken a course in college just about painters, and they they showed um, Picasso. They said, here's this finished work, but in order to really appreciate it, we're going to go back and show you slides of the very first drawings and then the slow creative evolutionary progress until we get to this. And so immediately I said, that's what is so interesting to me to hear a a demo by a Beatle and then hear them go into the studio later with another bootleg that has early versions and takes and mistakes and people making suggestions. And then hearing the final song, I just, I would, it was like a, 
a, a drug. I was hooked on that whole creative evolution and have been ever since. How old were you when you first discovered the Beatles? First got into the Beatles. Where do they enter the picture for you, you know, in your youth? Well, I'm 105 years old now. <laughs> you look great. You're obviously moisturizing very well. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, no, I was eight years old. And uh, one day, my dad always had the newspaper in the morning, you know, and I saw on the cover of the Chicago Tribune, these four guys having a pillow fight. And at the time, I was into Laurel and Hardy and Marx Brothers and all these old uh, slapstick type comedy people, at, you know, as an eight year old. So I said, oh, what's this? And my mom said, well, that's the Beatles and you should watch them. They're going to be on the Ed Sullivan show on Sunday. So I said, great. And I thought it was going to be a, a comedy routine of four guys having a pillow fight. <laughs> <laughs> when they came out and they started you know singing i want to hold your hand and she loves you i was first first shocked and then completely blissed out i'm like oh my god this is new this is so fresh and new at the time radio was awful there were all these like harry como crooners and syrupy ballads and there was and and the 50s rock and roll just wasn't being played in 1964 so it's like there was nothing for our generation all of a sudden these guys show up on the ed sullivan show and we were all like we've been saved <laughs> the of all time is starting off and so i was immediately hooked and uh you know i i think the first time they had an album out i didn't have any money my parents were like you gotta get a job now so i had, i don't know eight and a half I started mowing lawns and delivering newspapers just because I had to buy every Beatle record as it came out. Mm -hmm. So it was, that's what, that's how I got it started. And I was hooked after that. Yeah. Every album just blew me away. Man, that's great. And of course, I was listening to the Capitol releases at that time. Mm -hmm. Which were a little different than the, the ones the Beatles meant to put out, which they did in England. Yeah. 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 So from the, I guess from the start, as an American, from the start. Was there, was there a record or a song that really, you know, once you started listening intently, that really you think kind of sealed it for you, like the one that you just went, you know, this is everything yeah. for me. I would say she loves you right off the bat. Seeing the the energy of that and on Ed Sullivan, I would say the next big one for me would have been that summer when A Hard Day's Night came out, which uh, I had to go to that movie four times before I could hear it. <laughs> because the girls were screaming so loud and standing up that I couldn't hear even the dialogue they were screaming for. So I went to three <laughs> times. My parents were like, why, why are you going back again? I said, I still would like to see this movie. <laughs> so, so finally, the fourth time, I heard it, and and my favorite song was when they were in that sort of luggage cage, and they sang "I Should Have Known Better." There was just something about that song. Of course, Patty Harrison's there, and uh, in that scene, and the harmonica. There's something about the harmonica riff on that song that really grabbed me. So so that one really solidified it for me. Yeah. 
That's so funny that they were screaming in the theater to no one. Like, it's not like they could hear them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, and same thing happened with help, only I think I only had to go to help. The third time I went to help, I was able to hear it, not the fourth, like, hard days now. Oh, it my had, gosh. It, but it was really that bad. I'm sure I could find old girlfriends who would uh, back me up because they were all there screaming. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's got to be such an interesting kind of story arc to be, you know, I guess you said you were like eight and a half when A Hard Day's Night came out. And then fast forward to, I guess, when you're probably 15-ish, maybe when Let It Be hits the theaters. And it's a whole different world, you know. Yeah, but, you know, we followed them all the way along. I, I think the first big noticeable change was uh, in 67, on my birthday, my brother surprised me by putting the Sgt. Pepper album just on the record player, propped up there so that when I came home, I would, would see it and it's, you know, happy birthday. And I looked at it and I'm like, what is this? Who are these guys? And then I saw the wax dummies of, you know, the old Beatles standing next to the newer Beatles. And wow, they've really changed. And then of course, you put Sergeant Pepper on and it's no longer, I love you. You love me. It's, you know, it's a real thematic album with concepts and psychedelic music. And it blew me away. And, yeah. you know, at whatever age that was 10 or 11, I was not doing LSDs, but, but still the music kind of carried you away into, you know, a, a, a it just sort of took you off into almost this sort of relaxing fantasy world. Um, but it was fascinating. And yeah, so going through the whole process, you know, we changed and the Beatles changed, uh, but I was always um, locked in on them. The monkeys did not derail my, my Beatles. <laughs> I love the Beatles. And know that I am a card carrying diehard monkeys fan. So. <laughs> I'm a monkeys fan too. And I, but they just did not derail me. Oh, yeah. You can, I mean, you can't come for the Kings like that. <laughs> but you can certainly have a good uh, second have a or good third career. place, yeah, whatever you fine. want to be. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Well, and it was then, you know, learning about other bands, you know. And back then, there was such variety on the radio. So mm -hmm. It wasn't this big corporate machine AI programmed playlist type stuff like today. Yeah. yeah and it's funny, you know, just to jump back a second, I'm glad you mentioned – uh, on a, just on a personal level that uh, I should have known better was the song that kind of roped you in. Cause that's the same one for me. I can like distinctly remember sitting in the waiting room of a, of an orthodontist office waiting for my sister to get her braces tightened or something. Uh, and hearing that playing on the mute on the speakers in the office and asking my mom, what is this? This is the greatest thing I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. Like that song, it's, you know, it's not the best thing they ever wrote, but there's something about it for me that's just like, it's everything it Beatles. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Very upbeat. Yeah. yeah. And great harmonica riff. Yeah, for sure. Well, why don't we turn our focus to this week's song and chat about that a little bit, shall we? Yeah. All right, friends. Coming in this week at number 148 is Do You Want to Know a Secret? You'll never know how much I really love you You'll never know how much I really care 
promise not to tell Whoa, whoa closer Let me whisper in your ear Say the words you long to hear I'm in love with you Ooh, Listen Written in the fall of 1962, Do You Want to Know a Secret got its inspiration from John recalling a very early childhood memory. In his 1980 Playboy interview, he talks about remembering his mother singing to him uh, the beginning of I'm Wishing from the Disney movie Snow White when he was one or two years old, which it's really amazing to remember anything from one to two. Like, that's pretty impressive. Um, in the intro of that song is the lyric, Want to Know a Secret? Promise Not to Tell. Uh, he claims that the song was basically just something that was written, and once it was done, uh, he thought it might actually better suit George because, as John put it, again in the same interview, uh, quote, it only had three notes, and George wasn't the best singer in the world. He has improved a lot since then. Uh, but in those days, his singing ability was very poor because, A, he hadn't had the opportunity, and, B, he concentrated more on the guitar. So I wrote that, not for him as I was writing it, but when I had written it, I thought he could just do it. Uh, it was just written. So don't feel bad for George, though, because even he is on record as not liking his performance on this song, saying in the anthology, I didn't know how to sing. Nobody told me how. Uh, so Paul remembers it slightly different. He recalls it as a 50-50 written song between him and John and being written specifically for George. So interesting that there's you know a little dueling memory there. Uh, George recalls that the song may have gotten its, de its descending three-chord uh, melody from a, from a 1961 song by the Stereos called I Really Love You. Now, at some point during the band's final trip to Hamburg in December of 62, uh, John made a demo of the song in the bathroom of the club that they were playing in. Unfortunately, this demo apparently has been lost to time, as at the end of the song, the demo concludes with the sound of Lennon flushing the toilet. Which, Jim, do you ha have, you, have you heard the demo? Of uh, Do You Want to Know a Secret? Yeah, has anybody heard it? I don't think so. Okay. Apparently it's on record somewhere as, you know, he, or maybe he told somebody that he flushed the toilet at the end of the demo, but. I think I would have remembered that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when the Beatles enter Abbey Road on February 11th of 63 to record the majority of the Please Please Me album, even for a song that they hadn't yet performed live, they must have known it was coming in and being, and rehearsed it uh, because it only took them about 30 minutes of their afternoon session to record this song. It took six takes to get a master, and then two more for overdubbing, backing vocals, and percussion. The song was released on the Please Please Me album in the UK in March of 63, and then in the US in January of 64 by VJ Records, who also released it as a single in the US, where it reached number two on the Billboard charts. The band did play it live for several months of shows, including multiple BBC performances, but by summer of 63, it was out of their live set. And even in 64, where it sat at number two in the U.S., the band did not perform it on their U.S. tour. Uh, it was also recorded by Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas, another band managed by Brian Epstein, uh, also fellow local scenesters with the Beatles, and was released as a single in the U.K. and was a number one hit for Billy J. Kramer. So, why do I have Do You Want to Know a Secret at number 148? Uh, so I've always found that this song is probably more well-known than fans tend to give it credit for. Um, certainly more so than probably the Beatles give it credit for. Uh, it's just a song that even though it's never really discussed in terms of big hit Beatles songs, at, at least here in the U.S., it's never in that conversation, even though it was a number two hit, which shows that maybe, you know, 
maybe they didn't have faith in the song or maybe they considered that their writing had moved forward by the time by, by the time it was out and you know but somehow people still always seem to know this song even though it's not really heralded as one of those like big Beatle classics um, I think for as much flack as John and lots of McCartney detractors will give Paul for overly dramatic songs if this is a truly Lennon song he certainly has a flair for the dramatic himself that he doesn't want us to talk about because this song has like an almost soap at, soap opera dramatic intro that feels almost a little unbeatly. Uh, it kind of feels like it could maybe have a mariachi band come into it at the beginning. Um, it's a pretty smart chord progression, though. I think the descending melody has always been kind of an earworm to me. Uh, the backing vocals from John and Paul are like pure like early 60s doo kind of thing, and they're like they're done perfectly well. Um, I kind of have to agree with everyone about George's voice here, though. It's definitely nowhere near where his singing voice would become. Uh, he sounds kind of like he's like at his most cliche Scouse accent here, though. Uh, he's very pitchy, probably a bit nervous. Um, and it's always struck me as one of the least Lennon-McCartney Beatles-sounding songs of the period, though. It almost sounds like you took like a song generator and put in like 60% Beatles, 20% Jerry and the Pacemakers, 15% any faceless 1958 to 1960 group of white kids in a singing group and maybe like 5% dramatic Spanish soap opera and you would get this song. Um, but despite that, I think it's a really charming song. I love the overall product of it. At the end of the day, you know, the intro grabs you in a way that you kind of can't help but want to sing along to. The vocal melody is really catchy. The backing vocals are a great hook. It's perfectly pleasant. It's innocent. It's charming. And it really kind of exemplifies that early part of the Beatles spectrum. Um, I don't think I've ever not enjoyed hearing this song come on the radio for its, you know, one minute and 56 second length. Uh, I think it's a perfectly pleasant song. Is it a great knockout? Not necessarily, but nothing I dislike about the song. Really. Like, it's kind of cheesy, but I kind of love that about it. That's my two cents. Jim, I throw it over to you, man. What do you think? Well, I always found it to be a pleasant song. It was one of the early George Harrison vocals. And, and you know, as George said, he wasn't really prepared yet as a singer. But I like that, too. I mean, these this is early in their career. They're just starting out. So I, I like the fact that, you know, it isn't perfect by anyone's standards as a vocal. But I do like the sort of innocent nature of it. I like the fact that we can listen to uh, other versions from the BBC. They're the, the official release on air live at the BBC volume two has this song as does um, they put out a digital BBC 1963 album. I think it was iTunes only. Mm -hmm. uh, I think a version of it on there. Uh, of course, I'm biased in favor of George Harrison because I got to work with him and his wonderful family. Uh, so any George Harrison song in the Beatles canon is is great to me. Um, 
what what's interesting to me about John Lennon and memories is that depending on when he's interviewed or what mood he's in, sometimes the story's changed over time. I actually found, I did, I did find in researching for this, the, the Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs story, but I also found that he told David Sheff in 1980 uh, the following about the song, quote, I can't say I wrote it for George. I was in the first apartment I'd ever had that was shared with 14 other students, gals and guys at art school. I had just married Sin and Brian Epstein gave us his secret little apartment that he kept in Liverpool for his sexual liaisons separate from his home life. And he let Sin and I have that apartment. So I, I don't know whether he sort of was channeling that as the, do you want to know a secret? But, mm -hmm. um, and was he saying, do you want to know a secret about Brian Epstein, or do you want to know that we have this little apartment for liaisons, but whatever, it's just another interesting little, you know, footnote to this song, which I think is very pleasant, very innocent, and uh, I've always liked it. I find it really interesting on the live versions, they play it way faster, like way, way faster. Like it's almost, I have to wonder, were they did did they slow it down in the studio? Were they told to slow it down in the studio? Did they want it to be a quicker thing? Maybe by the time they're doing it live, are they kind of moving past it in their own heads and want to like just get it out of the way quicker? Because it's interesting, I think, to have such a wildly different uh, approach to that kind of song in a live setting. Well, my observation on that would be that George Martin, being a classical composer and musician and producer would have probably wanted them to stick to uh you know some kind of four four time or some sort of structured time because that was very important to him that's probably why we never saw pete best stay in the beatles either because of his drumming the big the biggest flaw with his drumming was his time kept going faster and slower. Mm -hmm. So, um, sorry, Pete, I love you. But, um, I think that uh, the other factor is if you, as I have, I've listened to so many Beatle live bootlegs over the years. They always rushed through and sped up every song they did in the live nature. And, and to them, whether it was at the BBC with no audience or a small audience or on stage in the stadium, for some reason, live performances by the Beatles are always quite a bit faster uh, than the ones they recorded in the studio. Yeah. Just like that live energy takes over and they just yeah, pick I it think up. Yeah. Or we got to get out of here. <laughs> We've got four other things to do today, guys. So let's wrap this up. <laughs> Where these, these girls lunch. are coming for us. Like yeah. we got to <laughs> <laughs> in the Brinks truck. Right. You got to put them in the armored car. To get, to get <laughs> what are you thinking about this one, Julia? What are your thoughts? Oh, you know, I really don't have any beef with George's vocals on this. I think they're kind of cute. Um, they don't, I didn't, have any like bad thoughts about them um i think the song as a whole is like a bit higher on the list than i would have put it like if you had told me this was by like 
the mayonnaise brothers that are from a small town in South Dakota, I'd be like, yeah, sure. That tracks. I believe that. Like, whatever. Like, nothing about it is, like, inherently beetle to me. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, like, a little more on sort of the saccharine end. Like, the... But I feel like not even as good as like Paul's more saccharine stuff. I don't right. know. Maybe it's just because it's very short and it's very simple. Mm-hmm. Like he rhymed two and two. I guess that's not even a rhyme. Like, <laughs> and it oh, was both bridge, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it was both like the number two. I was like, okay, that's a little. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I about that. <laughs> so like, it's, you know, it's just kind of, it's fine. It's pleasant. Like I, I'm not like, oh, this song is terrible. But I'm just like, meh about it. There's, I, there's definitely stuff that I would put above this on the list yeah. that I would enjoy more. It feels like. I do. I do like the, the do I do's they throw in. Oh, for sure. That's, I do too. Yeah. yeah. Like the pitch of them is nice. Like they're a little more high it's pitch. A nice melody. Yeah. 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 I, I always. It just feels like it's not a. Lennon McCartney song or a Lennon song or it, you know, it feels like they hadn't found the thing that made them unique or they hadn't tapped into it on that song necessarily Yeah. as writers. Um, it's like other influences are more prominent than their own individual songwriting skills. Yeah. And I think know? they realized it because as it's a number two in the U S they're not even playing like, we're it. We're not doing that. They're like, I mean, it's, they're like, it's fine, but we got better stuff. Y'all listen to this. Yeah. <laughs> For sure, but no, it is one of the, it's also one of those things you know. It, it's a song that I've always found like more people know, which I find really interesting because in my head, it's a it's kind of an obscure song towards the end of the album, but it seems like people always know that song, which is interesting to me. I guess because it was a hit here, it probably still gets radio play, but I don't. It, it wasn't necessarily a hit for them. Uh, well, it wasn't a single in the UK, so. But um, yeah. So at number one forty, where am I? <laughs> I'm gonna like print out the rankings and have them in front of me. I'm so bad. At one forty-eight out of two twenty-three, do we think we're too high or too low? I think it's right where it needs to be. I, I'm. I mean, if you're asking me, I think it's it's fine right there. Yeah. Uh, what I think is interesting, though, I was actually thinking about this. Uh, you ought to maybe do a book and and list all of these songs and your information about each one. I think a lot of people would enjoy reading about it as well. I've, to- I've had that idea float through my head from time to time. Um, I've never written a book. Don't know how to. Don't know how that works. <laughs> but. Uh... So, uh, when you- when you get through all these songs, you can just transcribe what you've said. And, yeah. And then and there, there's your book. Yeah. <laughs> That's not a bad idea. I'll, have, I'll, I'll see it. it brain surgery, writing a book. Let me tell you. If you want to write it's, the foreword. Yeah, I'll write the foreword. It's more about passion. Yeah. That would be fun. I could, I could. And if you think, I mean, I think what you said earlier, I was really interested and fascinated by that. And that was just one song. So imagine reading... I think. Well, of course, just listening to your show, too. Mm-hmm. People can listen to your show, or if they're readers, they could then read about it. 
Once you get to the end, though, you got to do every song. Oh, yeah. I mean, we've got 147 more to go. So we're still tied uh, in for a few more years, at least. Really cool idea. <laughs> Thanks, man. I appreciate that. So you think, Julia, you think it's too too low in the number, too high? I think it's too high. Yeah. Yeah, I would drop it down a little bit. In the 175-ish? Um, Are you keeping it in the hundreds? Mm, I don't even know that I keep it in the hundreds. Yeah? Interesting. Okay. We're at 148. I don't know. Ma- you bump it to the twos? I would say somewhere between like 180 and maybe like two. Okay. Uh, 215. Somewhere Specific? in there. Okay. Yeah. Because <laughs> there's definitely like stuff that's not that I don't like as much as this. Right. Um, but so I wouldn't put it all the way down at the bottom, but. Yeah. Okay. Pretty, oh, quite a ways back. Just because okay. it's like, just not very beatably to me. Yeah. It doesn't scream them. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, I think we'll put a pin in that one. Um, Jim, before we wrap up for the day, my friend, can we do some rapid fire questions? Sure. All right, cool. <clears throat> so rapid fire question number one, your favorite Beatles song. You know my name, look up the number. Yes, sir. A brave choice. Can I ask you to tell me why? Because that is such a different choice than anyone's ever had. Well, I I always loved it because I just thought it was so funny. I thought I felt like I was in this like bizarre Twilight Zone nightclub. Um, I've always appreciated the Beatles and Liverpool humor. Uh... Everyone else, you know, can have their Hey Judes and such. But, you know, I like all those other songs. But when you rapid fire asked me, that's the first thing that came off the top of my head. I, that would be my uh, Desert Island song because it makes me smile, too. Yeah. I love it. That's a, that's a perfect answer for that. And it completely tracks with what led you to the Beatles in the first place. You yeah. thought they were going to be funny. And turns out they are pretty right. funny, in addition to making great songs. Right. <laughs> right. Good point. Well done. Yeah. Uh, do you have a least favorite Beatles song? Mr. Moonlight. <laughs> Same page, my friend. Same page. That is at the bottom <laughs> of my if I did your list. That would be the last one on the list. I never liked that. Song. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. Uh, favorite Beatles album? Abbey Road. Yeah, I think Abbey Road. You can get with that one. Um, your favorite memory associated with the Beatles? Hmm. I suppose the uh, first time I met a Beatle, which was uh, 1976, June, uh, Chicago Stadium, Wings was playing, and uh, my buddy and I were seated right under, we were right in that, whatever that area is, but I guess the photo area or something, you know, that's right by the stage. And my mom knew the guy that ran Chicago stadium. So he just put two little chairs in there for me and my buddy. Uh, And it was also by the steps where he would come down from his piano. So uh, what's really funny is when he played live and let die back then, no one knew about these, these explosives that were all along the side of the stage so he goes, live and let die. 
that's the last thing I saw. And I was completely knocked over. So was my friend. We were on our backs and smoking craps everywhere, sparks. And I'm like, this seems a bit dangerous. So, uh, Andy Frayn Usher came and said, oh, we're so sorry. Picked us up and put us back together again. And we're like, okay, he's going to hit that that stanza again. So we like went over to this curtain and just like hid until that song was over because we didn't want to get blasted again. So <laughs> during, and he probably noticed, the, you know, because when two people are backwards and they're, you know, right there. So when they, they took a break during the concert uh, at some point and Paul and Linda went down those steps and they came right over to us and just started chatting with us. like, Hey, how are you guys doing? I'm like, well, we're alive, Paul. Do you have any skin left? Like, <laughs> you know, we're all laughing. And he goes, yeah, that's that's kind of a big deal. And then uh, he said, well, what do you think of the show so far? And my buddy was like awestruck, so he couldn't talk. And I said, Paul, I think this is the best rock concert I will ever see in my life. And boy, he liked that answer. Yeah. <laughs> So, and then he, you know, did a few couple pictures and then they, you know, put towels over their necks and went back to get some water and, and stuff and, and then went back up again. And it was just a, a nice little quick meet and greet and right in the middle of a show. And that was, that was probably the first big exciting moment, I would say. Yeah. That's pretty great. Uh, yeah. That, uh, <laughs> that'll do. Thanks. <laughs> Others, but I don't want to bore your listeners. <laughs> um, anytime you want to talk about wings, I am here for it. So that is a okay with me. What's your favorite wing song? <laughs> oh, my favorite wing song? Yeah. Beware, beware My Love. Ooh. All right. Oh, and that's tied with Mumbo because both of them really rock hard. Yeah. We we just but, had, we had Wildlife on uh, yesterday morning. We were listening to Wildlife. Yeah. Yeah. I can listen to Mumbo over and over and over. Yeah, that's a jam. During the uh, during the first co- first of twenty COVID lockdowns, <laughs> I decided that I wanted to learn the uh, piano part for for Mumbo because I thought if Linda can play it, I can figure it out. But there was this one chord change where I couldn't. It was some odd, really odd chord, and so I remember calling like my kindergarten friend Carol, who uh, is a big Beatle fan, of course, but she had become a piano teacher. I said, you got to find this chord for me because I can't finish the song and I can't come out of lockdown until I can play all of them. (laughs) (laughs) She listened to the song and said, I can't figure it out. And then she called some PhD gal who figured it out. And then I was able to finish mumbo, but it's always kind of fun to sometimes play along with songs yeah oh that's great man well jim this has been so much fun my friend uh i know you've got what the, the new book is coming out yeah I have a new book it's called mysteries in the music case closed it'll be available at uh or it is available at amazon.com if you want to learn more about it the website is called musicmysterybook.com and i'll just read you a quick quote from friend and drummer uh, Chris Franz of the Talking Heads who wrote, the rock and roll detective strikes again. 
Rock and roll was built on its own crazy mythology, but Jim knows the true stories are likely to be even wilder than the myths. I read this book with great pleasure and fascination, and I have no doubt that you will too. Nice. So I'm honored to have his endorsement. Yeah, sure. that's a great review. Now, I, I do want to ask you also about the 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 Beetle Who Vanished book, the Jimmy Nickel book. Um, I've been meaning to read that for a while. What, without giving away any real, you know, juice from the book, you know, what was kind of the most surprising thing that you learned in your research about that? Because Jimmy Nickel, outside of his like 10 days with the band, is such an enigma. Like I find that whole story so interesting. Well, I think that uh, one of the big surprises to me was that he seemed to think that because he had been inside the Beatles and saw how it worked and saw their success and experienced it for those two weeks, he thought he could go into the studio, get a crack band together, which he did, and and basically replicate the success of the Beatles and ultimately surpass them. He had a pretty large, has a pretty large ego. So <clears throat> he tried that and I think one of the things that he failed to understand was he was a drummer, he wasn't a vocalist, so he wasn't gonna be the guy out front. Yet he was the guy that everybody in the media focused on when he joined the Beatles. So now he had some nameless, unrecognizable person singing cover songs, and they weren't even rock and roll, they were more sort of, they were a few years ahead of their time, they were sort of jazz rock type songs and you know no one knew who the guy was and he was kind of a crooner from the older days and it just didn't didn't work and so they went from playing some pretty big shows like they substituted for the Dave Clark Five because Dave Clark got got nil and they got to be top of the bill and, and such but it just didn't catch on there the singles that they chose were not as good as some of the B-sides and, and one of the singles they chose uh, ended up not even coming out because at the same time across town, um, who was it? Well, Van Morrison had recorded the, the same single at the same time as Jimmy Nichols' Shub Dubs, <laughs> which was their, their name. And, uh, he had uh, Jimmy Page on guitar, guest guitar, session player. So you know which song did better than the other. So, <laughs> yeah, so, and he also was, uh, Jimmy was a big spender. Like he saw that George Harrison had a, I don't know what, a, a X, Jaguar XKE. So he bought one when he got back. He blew all his dough. He started, I think, fraternizing with, with other girl fans and his wife of course divorced him and he had a young child so I don't know I just think it's it showed that instant fame can be a double-edged sword you know there's good and bad to it and I think he let a lot of that go to his head and um, so it caused him to have some setbacks which he later did recover from but it was just to me a really nice interesting character study and I think that's why uh, Roy Orbison's family uh, bought the film rights from me and, and we're making a film about it because they, they like that idea of um, 
the double-edged sword of fame and how it can affect people. Mm-hmm. Are they still working on that film? Yes, they are. Uh, it's in development, and the screenwriter is working on an outline right now, and then from there, then they approve it, or we we all like make suggestions, and then uh, from there, it goes to script writing, and then we'll go into pre-production and then production. Nice. Such a long yeah, process that, to make a movie. Really slow, yeah, I'm finding. But um, that book's available, too, at Amazon, The Beetle Who Vanished. And if you want to see video and such of Jimmy Nickel, uh, you can go to that book site, which is thebeetlewhovanished.com. Nice. And is there a good uh, a good hub for everyone to follow along with everything you're doing? Yeah, I'd say... Uh, I have a uh, Facebook page called Rock and Roll Detective. And so a lot of news goes there. I have an Instagram page, Rock and Roll Detective. Twitter, Rock Detect, at Rock Detective. I'm all over the place. Um, And the websites I've mentioned. Plus, if someone just wants to know my general history in that area, I have a website that's called rockandrolldetective.com. Nice. Well, Jim, thank you so much, my friend. This has been an absolute pleasure getting to chat to you on here. And uh, like I said, we've got 147 more of these, so we'll have to have you back on again (laughs) to do another one. Well, thanks, Jonathan and Julia. I really appreciate being on your show, and I really enjoyed it. And uh, keep up the good work. Let's let's get to the next song next time. Thanks so much, my friend. Appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon, okay? Jim Birkenstadt, everybody. How about that? What a good time. The rock and roll detective. I mean, I just want to talk about wings a little bit more with him. Can we go back <laughs> yeah, to that? We, that is kind of your just jam. have him back on to talk about wings? Well, we can do ranking the wings when this is over. <laughs> you just got to wait a few years. But, man, I, um, you know, he, he's like digging into the things that I read and nerd out about all the time. So, like. I wonder if you could have like an internship. You could be, <laughs> could like, be an honorary junior detective. Yes. You get like a little badge. <laughs> a little badge. <laughs> Very cute. <laughs> little like a little fedora hat and some black glasses. <laughs> a <Yes>. magnifying glass. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, I want that. That's the package that comes with the internship. For my birthday in November. <laughs> internship at the Rock and Roll Detective Agency. Uh, well, friends, what do you think about Do You Want to Know a Secret at 148? Are we, as we like to say here, are we too high, are we too low, or are we just like Baby Bear's porridge, just right? Oh, that was very smooth. Sultry. Yeah. Smooth. Yeah. I got that. I feel like that's like an ice cream commercial voice. I've got that post, uh, post that morning after a show voice mm, where I do. sing for three hours mm-hmm. and then it's like, oh, baby, I could do the dark light thing today. <laughs> well, well, let's not get carried away. Episode <laughs> ranking number 148. Do you want to know a secret? <laughs> That's how you say it like that. Do you want to know a secret? Okay, this is making me very uncomfortable. Please stop. Do you stop. promise not to tell? No, okay, that sounds really awful. Stop. <laughs> okay, I'm going to stop that. Please stop. That's too much. I'm sorry, everyone. I'm not cutting this. This is too much fun. Uh, so let us know what you think in the comments on our pages. If you're not following us on them, you should be following us on Facebook at... Ranking the Beatles. And you can follow us on Instagram at... Ranking the Beatles. And you can follow us on Twitter at... Ranking Beatles. That is right. So let us know what you think about this ranking. And uh, if you're enjoying the show, would you tell a friend? 
won't you tell two friends? Tell three if you want to. We don't care. However many you feel like telling. Um, and we always appreciate, if you're enjoying it, a five-star or maximum number of stars ranking on the podcast platform of your choice. Yeah. So, I think we've done a good one this week, my dear. What do you think? It was good. You happy with it? Good. We ranked it, man. We ranked it. We're we, done. We ranked the Beatles, and all I got was a stupid T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> should we should sell? We should sell that. <laughs> I think that's that's. I ranked the Beatles, and all I got that was, was a stupid T-shirt. t-shirt. <laughs> I think we that's we that's the money maker right there. There we go. That's yep. the money maker. Yes, this is how we make tens of dollars. <laughs> <laughs> well, friends, we're gonna sign off for the week because we're about to go to the IMAX to watch Good Book. Yay! Can't wait. First time I've been to the movies in like four years. Yes. Yeah. It's gonna be weird. Just putting popcorn into my mask. Yeah. So I can just eat it. Like yeah. Like a um. Like, like a like a okay. like a feed like bag. Like a feed bag. Like a yeah. horse feed bag. Is it horses <laughs> that use feed bags? Uh, it could be. Huh? <laughs> I'm not down with the farm life, but yeah, we are not be. outdoorsy people. Um. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. We're going to the Bye movies, y'all. kids. <laughs> Until next time, I'm Jonathan. And I'm Julie. This has been Ranking the Beatles. (laughs) Adios, y'all. Adios. It's too fun.